Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be with you today. You could uh, please join me in prayer. Father, we commit to you this time now to hear from you, to hear from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would impress it upon our lives, that you would cause uh, ears to hear and hearts to stir because we've heard from you. And I pray, Lord, that the seed that is planted because your word has gone forth would bear fruit in some way at some time. We trust you for that work by faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Probably most of us here have heard of the famous preacher and evangelist, Billy Graham. Maybe one of the most recognized religious figures of the 20th century. He was known for evangelical crusades all over the world, over 185 countries, and he preached a straightforward, simple, gospel message. It's estimated that he preached to well over 200 million people. I would probably guess that some of us here maybe attended one of those crusades. And then maybe fewer of us have heard of Charles Templeton, who was a longtime friend of Billy Graham. In fact, they ministered together as evangelists for Youth for Christ International in the early years of Billy's ministry. And he, like Billy, preached the gospel to thousands around the world as well. And between the two, Templeton was actually recognized as the more winsome, the more intellectually persuasive preacher. And there was a period in both of their lives around the same time where they both struggled in their faith particularly with God's word and whether it was actually a reliable source of truth. Graham, after much anguish and soul-searching, confessed he did not have all the answers to all the hard questions, but he made a decision to take by faith the Bible as God's word. His friend Templeton, finding too many difficulties that he could not reconcile, could not do this. Instead, he drifted to a more liberal view of the Bible. And he told Billy that what he was doing was intellectual suicide. Graham went on preaching. He delivered his last message at the age of 95. 
Templeton shortly thereafter left the church and eventually renounced his faith, describing his decision in terms of his rational mind whittling away at an irrational faith until nothing remained. Our passage today comes from the book of Hebrews, for which the overriding theme is the superiority of Jesus. Surely it was written to Christians, it was to strengthen them in their faith, but amongst the audience who would be reading it would also be those whose standing in the faith was unclear. The writing comes against a backdrop of Judaism from which the original audience likely had roots in. And some were starting to actually sort of revert back to it in, in, a, in a mixed hybrid sort of form. And the mixing was such that Jesus and his work on the cross was being watered down in such a way that it was effectively being denied. Whittled away, if you would. In our day, maybe you could imagine maybe the mixing of something like Hollywood and the church, where we need bright lights and big names and entertaining programs in the name of Jesus. And maybe slowly, though, well, the songs with Jesus are taken out and replaced with, let's just use the songs that say God. And then maybe... Let's just not use that. Let's just use the one that's a light. And worship of Jesus starts to whittle away too. And it wouldn't be entirely difficult to imagine in this social media age where a decreasing use of maybe Bible verses, Bible truth, or even mentioning the name of Jesus would be canceled for that because you will likely get fewer likes and less people would be interested. Until maybe we just stop looking at anything in the Bible altogether. Such a shrinking back or falling away, as the author in Hebrews talks about, is a grave possibility in the life of the individual. Just look at Charles Templeton. And so the book of Hebrews was written, was written as a strong exhortation to true believers in Christ to remain firm in their faith and to keep them from the disaster of turning away. We're looking today at a rather straightforward passage about the Christian life, which the author of Hebrews likens to an endurance race of faith. And the reason why it's a race is because it's meant to be lived out intentionally with a purpose. We're looking forward to some end, to a finish. It's not meant to be idling or sitting, aimlessly meandering and, you know, ending up wherever that leads you. And the whole of this passage is built around one singular imperative, one command, and that is run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
or simply keep running. Keep running the race of faith. And everything else in that section, in that passage, supports this idea. And so with that single imperative command in mind, our message today is framed around two simple questions. One, what is the race of faith? If I'm going to run this race, if, probably should know what it is. And then two, how should I run it? If I'm going to run this race, that's an if, I should know how to do it. So first, what is this race of faith? What does it look like? Well, starting with faith, the word, I think it's used pretty loosely today. Uh, It's easily lumped together with mystical sorts of thoughts, right? You could use good vibes or manifesting their way into making something happen. You, You could possibly make a case for those being similar things. I'm actually not even sure what good vibes or manifesting means when you use it that way. But I think that's the point. It's really a free-for-all. It could be just fingers crossed. It could be name it and claim it. It's yours. It could be, you know, believe, believe. Believe is a, and it's a correct, we use that word for faith. But that's also like stuff of anime. I believe in the heart of the cards. That's a Yu-Gi-Oh thing. It's no wonder academics look at this faith and say that it's irrational. And they say that it's mindless. But it's not. The Christian faith is not. And today we're interested in how the writer of Hebrews is using that word. In chapter 11, he gives a simple description. He says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And by it, the people of old were commended by God. He also said that it's impossible to please God without this faith. Because if you want to be close to God, he says, you have to, one, you have to believe he exists, and two, You have to believe that he rewards you when you seek him. If if I could try to illustrate this with an example, in hopes of helping our understanding of faith and how it pleases God, I will make an attempt. When my kids were babies, we had a small swimming pool in our backyard. We lived in Texas. So we'd get really hot. And in part of the swimming pool, we had put this like cave, like a grotto. And um, it was about, you know, five feet off the surface of the water. And you could go in and sit down. And it had like a little thing and and jets. And it would pump a waterfall. And it was really cool. And when it would get hot, we'd take my one to two-year-old kid you know, we'd play around in the water, and what I'd do, much to the dismay of maybe my 
wife, and maybe some of you have done sort of things like this, but I would put them up here on the top of the cave, and I would go down into the water, and I would stand in front of them. And they would come to the edge, and I would stand like this. And I would be very sure that I'm looking them in the eye, and I'm trying to get their attention, and I would hold out my arms and make them as big as I can, and as strong as I could, and I would smile and I would say, jump. And they would come to the edge and they would look down and for a little, you know, when you're standing, when you're a little one-year-old, two-year-old, you stand at the edge and I could see there was nervousness. I could see there was hesitation. But they would look into my eyes and... (laughs) If, if you're a parent, you might understand. If you've done something like this, you understand that I'm telling you, those were some of my proudest love-filled parenting moments when they jumped. There was an overwhelming sense of care and protection. And it's not that they jumped off the ledge. I mean, that's cool too. But in that moment, in that moment, what was so, was so, made me so proud was when you knew that they saw your love for them. They saw who you were. And they trusted in that more than their concerns about the height and about the water, and about the rocks. And after doing it a couple more times, eventually they get a little more confident. And they're no longer afraid at some point. And sometimes they just start jumping. They'll turn and they'll do tricks and they're jumping in your arms and when they land in your arms, they are laughing. And what they do is they bury their head in your chest and they're so, they just feel so much joy. It's a great, great feeling. And it's because, as a parent, because you know that they get you. This is how God would, this is how God is with us. And there is nobody more capable of catching and securing us like that than God. His nature is that he wants to lavish that kind of love to us, that kind of protection and that kind of care. And he even went so far as to the extent that we would, so that we would know him, was to send his son who was the exact representation of who he was, that he sent him to us. He sent them so that we could know him. And it was through his son, Jesus, and his race of faith, that we come to know who God is. You know, people often refer to faith as blind. But if you've heard the gospel of Christ and you have seen who Jesus is, you know that it is not blind. And so we jump, 
we jump to him because we see his strong arms and we see so clearly his face of love. And we are assured and convicted that while we cannot see ahead to the actual catch, we know that the catch is going to be secure. If you've ever done those things with your, with your baby or your toddler, you see upon catching them how completely thrilled and filled with joy. You know the hugs. And you know that what transpired in that moment, that interaction, it was not mindless, it was not irrational. It was a powerful picture of faith. Chapter 11 in Hebrews is often referred to as the Hall of Faith chapter. The writer goes through all the big names of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Joseph, Samuel, etc. And he, he talks about how their lives illustrated this faith that he put words to and described. And in talking about these lives of faith, he says that they were strangers and exiles on earth because their life choices indicated that they were seeking a different homeland. It was a heavenly one where God exists and rewards their coming to him. They weren't doing what the world told them that they should be doing. It was not live for today. It was not eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. It was not be your own boss. It was not bigger, stronger, faster. And because of that, because they made those choices, God was pleased to be their God, he says. And he says that, he, the writer said that God had already been preparing for them a new home which he promised to give them. And they ran this race of faith, and no matter what the outcomes in their lives, and there were good and there were bad, some of the good results, kingdoms conquered, dead brought back to life, justice enacted, some of the bad results, beaten, stoned, imprisoned, homeless, poor, sawn in two. Regardless of the outcome of the events in their life, they still lived with the same assurance and conviction for the promise that God made to them. And they kept, they kept doing that all the way until they died. The last two verses in that chapter, verses 39 and 14, says this, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They, they never received the promises of God in their earthly lifetime. Yet they kept going. They endured all the way till the end. But the reason they didn't get these promises was not because God had forgotten about them. It was not because God, you know, hey, I'll get to them later and dismiss them. 
Verse 40 says it this way. It says, it's because he had provided something better for us. And that's Jesus, who connects us to those Old Testament saints who didn't yet get the promise. It connects us to them in a unique way. As we finally get to the first verse in chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses is obviously, it's the Old Testament saints whose lives we were just talking about and whose lives are witness, witnessing to us about what running the race of faith should look like. And they are now connected to us in that apart from our finishing the race of faith, they will not receive the promises of God in Jesus Christ because, because it says they should be they should not be made. They, God provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. They should not be made complete. That the promises would not be. And the reason is because God intended that we all receive them together. This is a glorious, glorious truth, if you think about it. Because it unites us to all the saints who have ever been. Past, present, future. And one day we will form one giant cloud of witnesses who are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus to fulfill all the promises of a new heaven and new earth. That's a big, glorious picture of the end. And it's together. So what is this, our first question, what is this race of faith? Well, it's simply the intentional life of Christians being lived out with conviction that what God said he would do, he would do that he will deliver upon them and that we will live and so we will live out our life with assurance and convictions in those promises and that will be pleasing to God and we will be rewarded for it the second part i said is uh, that we are going to go through, is how should we run this race? How should we run this race of faith? The first thing to keep in mind is that the race we are running is not a sprint. It's an endurance race. Running a 26.2-mile marathon is not the same as running a 100-meter dash. Marathon runners and sprinters are different. They train different. They eat different. They think different. We all know who Usain Bolt is. There's no question, right? World record holder for 100-meter sprint, fastest human ever. His legs are specimens, powerful specimens of fast-twitch muscle fiber. It's said that each one is capable of 1,000 pounds of force every time they touch the ground. They've been called superhuman. And they allow him to be faster than, well, everyone in the world. 
for a short distance. Not many of us probably know Eliud Kipchoge. He holds the world record for the marathon. He's run the marathon distance in under two hours. He is a foot shorter than Usain and almost half his weight. He's recognized as one of the best marathon runners ever, and he is quoted as saying this, athletics is not so much about the legs. It's about the heart and the mind. The, the Christian life, the race we're running in, it's, it's not about short distances and getting to the end as fast as we can. It's a marathon, a long-term commitment of consistency. It's about going the distance and finishing well. As we continue on in our passage, it says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The last thing you could imagine doing in a marathon is exerting all sorts of energy carrying something for 26.2 miles all the way to the finish line, something that you don't need. Could you imagine carrying a backpack full of heavy rocks while you ran an endurance race? No, you couldn't because you probably wouldn't be able to finish. You would need to get rid of them. To keep running in the race of faith, are there weights that you're carrying around that make running this race harder than it needs to be for you? It doesn't necessarily have to be something, you know, evil. The text says that weights and sins, weights and sins, there's difference. Weights could be good things, good things for others but not so good for you. For you, it's a weight because it's impeding. You're walking by faith. You're running by faith. It could be anything, really. It could be ice cream. It could be TikTok. It could be a round of golf, a work meeting, or time management habits. You know, for some of the original readers to, to which Hebrews was, was addressed, uh, one particular weight for them was actually their own Jewish practice of the Mosaic Law. Many of them had turned to Jesus in faith as Messiah, but then they were going back to it, back to their traditional practices, but to the point now that they were effectively watering down their commitment to follow Christ. You know, maybe following the teaches, teachings of Jesus meant changes in their life, changes that would make them stand out, not quite fit in with their community. Culture is tricky. We talked about this the other night, actually, at Axis, how changing cultural and societal norms, specifically we were talking about gender, but and how these sorts of thoughts and standards affect the way we see the world and what it means to actually believe in an objective standard of truth. We call that the Bible. And when the Bible goes counter to that, what does that mean and what does that look like for us? That's tricky. 
There are, there are things that I have seen and probably still don't see about my own Koreanness, my Americanness. Their weights, their weights in my life, and they make it difficult for me sometimes to run a marathon, a marathon of faith. You know, if we are serious about running an endurance race to the end, because that's that's what counts, right? How we finish. If we are serious about that, and we must be serious, the stakes are too high to not be serious about this. Well, these are the things that we should be willing to look at, things that we should be willing to take necessary measures to adjust or offload. Not simply because we're concerned about, hey, is this right, is this wrong, is this good, bad? But whether or not they're going to help us run towards what is best. And those are the promises of God. John Piper, former pastor in Minnesota, said, he said this, As a boy, I was mightily helped by having my very categories changed in the way I lived my life. I commend it to you young people especially. Don't ask about your music and your movies, your parties, your habits. Don't ask what's wrong with it. Instead, ask, does it help me run the race? Does it help me run for Jesus? Now, our text also says that there were sin considerations too. Identifying the sin that clings to your life and keeps you from running, it, it may not be as nuanced a task as you know, identifying weights. I mean, sin tends to be pretty glaring, right? Until it's not. Until you've been doing it for so long, it just has become a habit. It's never been questioned. It's not a problem. No one's, no one's getting hurt. But it will keep you from running. It will keep you from running to the end. Because you'll run, you'll slow down, you'll stop, you'll turn around, and you'll leave the race. Weights and sin, categorically keeping you, both keeping you from running with endurance. And the attitude towards them as athletes, athletes who are committed to the end, is that we need to get rid of them. Professional athletes go to great lengths when they're out of commission. Great lengths to get back in the game. We need to do that. We need to go to those lengths to keep running. We need to wage war against it. It's that serious. Whatever you need to do, if you have to adopt the Mamba mentality, do it. If you have to have the eye of the tiger, do it. If you have to Marie Kondo inventory your whole life and say, this stays and this goes, do it. 
when we think about our battle and what's at stake, we need to wage war against the things that are keeping us from running to the end. Ephesians 4, 24 says that you were taught in Christ to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Remember that part of this new self in Christ, one of the rewards that we've received from him is that we are no longer slaves to sin. That is, we don't have to choose sin. We've been set free from choosing to sin. We've been set free from enslavement. Do not give in to the voice that says, well, we'll always be sinners. I'm cool with just, you know, I can meander through the race. I'll settle for a participation ribbon. It doesn't end well when we think like that. And we all know what sins we've been battling with, right? We all know the ones that have stuck with us through the course of our lives. The message of Hebrews is do not stop battling them. Declare a new war against them. The race to the end demands that if we are going to make it, we have to do that. We have to keep running. And so the first point in answering the question of how we should be running this race is lay aside weights and sins. Work to stay in endurance race shape. I mean, we do that for our physical bodies, which we know are temporary, right? And we're obsessed with that. Why wouldn't we do the same when it comes to our eternal souls? There's more at stake with that. And that leads us to the next point in answering, how should we run this race of faith? And that's in verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, earlier we looked at the great cloud of witnesses, and we saw the Old Testament saints whose lives witnessed to what the race of faith looks like, people who've gone to the end. And what we saw were people who were commended by God because though they didn't see the end promises of God, they lived as though they did. Whether things turned out good, whether things turned out bad, and through all the suffering in between, they kept running all the way to the end of their lives. And even though they didn't see the promises that were given to them realized, they still trusted God would deliver somehow, even after they were gone. So how should we run this faith, this race of faith, you say? Yes, the example they give, it's great. We should keep running like they did. But for those of us who now live on the other side of the cross, and that's all of us here, 
in history, we have, we have something even better. It's still the same race of faith, but now we have Jesus. And we are to keep our eyes on him while we run. I know that the answer for everything in every Bible study and every church meeting is always Jesus. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We hear it all the time. It's in, we have communion every week. We talk about Jesus. We sing songs about Jesus. There's not one song we don't sing that's not about Jesus. But there's a reason for that. If you read the Bible cover to cover, it's about Jesus. And if we don't keep our eyes on him, we will turn from him. Because everybody else in this world, they have. The text says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is the author and the finisher. That is from our faith's beginning, when it was born in us, when we went from death to life, that is, to its future completion in the promises of God when he returns, and everything in between actually, we give credit to Jesus. It's a work of God in us. Our faith is a work of God in us, both created and sustained by Jesus all the way until the end. And as we keep looking to him, we are constantly reminded of his example of faith. And it goes like this as we keep reading through this text. It says, who for the joy that was set before him. Did you know that Jesus too in his life looked and looks forward to the promise of joy? Now this joy, this promise was the greatest imaginable joy you could probably fathom. It is the loving approval from the Father who he loved more than anything and the reward of his being exalted to the singular place of the right hand of the throne of God. Along with the future assembly of all the redeemed people ever. That's what kept him going. And it kept him going all the way, even through and past the cross. And that was the future joy that was set before him. And we go on to read, and it says, He endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus had a race. It was his race. It was a race of 
and great endurance. A race that no one will ever have to run in a similar way or in the exact way. In John 6, 38, 40, it talks about what Jesus wanted. And all he wanted to do, all he wanted was to do the will of his Father. He loved the Father. It says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The whole reason for Jesus being born on earth was to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was to go and rescue us. It was not an aimless race. He knew what he had to do. And it would require him to throw off weights, to endure a suffering to the level that no one has or ever will ever have to face, which was the work of the cross. That kind of endurance race would require that he run with all of the weight of the sin of the world on his back. He would have to race with that weight and finish. When you think about this, how could Jesus, okay, who the Bible says he knew no sin, how could he willingly go to the cross? And this is really mind-blowing to think about. Because he knew it wasn't about the physical pain. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. I think there was more. He knew that he was about to be rejected by the same Father whose will is all that he wanted to obey and do because he loved him that much. And yet he went to a cross knowing that he was about to lose that momentarily. So why would he do that? The text says, for the joy set before him. Because he believed that the promises of God to one day be at the right hand of his father's throne, together with all those he came to save. The ones who would look at what he did at the cross and believe in him for eternal life, that this promise, even if he was walking to a cross to be rejected by his father, he knew, he believed in the character of his father that those promises would one day be fulfilled. And that's what kept him running. That's what kept him going. Those promises from his father kept him running all the way to his death. 
It was the assurance of what he hoped for, the conviction of the unseen promise, and it pleased God. Such faith born out of his love for the Father, it pleased God. We can please God. And then Philippians 2.8.10 says this, it says, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And here's, therefore, therefore, because of that, because he went all the way, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The reward, the promise. And as we continue on through the example of Jesus' race of faith, motivated by the joy that was set before him, enduring the cross, despising the shame, and we get to now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's a picture of completion. That's a, that's a picture of endurance to the end. But here's this. Jesus is not just sitting there enjoying his seat, his cushy seat. What is he doing? You know what he's doing? He's talking to the Father about us. He's asking for forgiveness from the Father for us on our behalf. He's asking to, for the Father to help us. Because remember the, remember the great cloud of witnesses? Do you remember the picture? Do you remember all of that? That's Jesus' work. He's still doing that. That cloud is still growing. He finished his work. He will finish his work. He's returning to complete and fulfill his promises to us. That should keep us running. That should make us want to run. That should make us want to finish and get all the way to the end. Where are you in this race? You can be honest with yourself. Some of us maybe are going. We've been going. We're trucking along. We've got the shoes. We've got the hydration. We've got everything. We're going. Keep going. There's better, way better. Some of us have gone a long way. We've stopped for a drink or two or three. We're getting used to it. It's time to get back out. There's still more. There's still more distance. Some of us maybe have gone a mile. We're discouraged because, geez, there's so many more miles, it seems, to go. Can you hear the cheers? The cheers of the great multitude? That's a picture of a stadium of cheering for you. They're waiting for you to finish. Because when you finish, they get the promises too. They're all waiting. Keep going. 
Keep going, they're screaming. We've done it, you can do it. Some of us have running on a to-do list. We can't get off the couch. Put away your phones, put away whatever, whatever, whatever you're doing. Get back out, go. Go start the race. Whatever's weighing you down, let it go. It's not worth it. I hope you will determine to keep running by faith today. Identify weights, sins, whatever. Get help. Tell someone about them who will hold you accountable in your endurance race. It's easier to train and run when you do it with others. We have each other. The writer to Hebrews says, he says, lift drooping hands, strengthen weak knees, make straight paths, do these things so you can keep going. You know, I hope, I hope with with the assurance from God that when all is said and done, that we will all, all of us here, that we will be sitting together, not running anymore, because our faith will be turned to sight. And we'll be with all the former racers to the great cloud of witnesses. And we'll be talking about our weight, not how much we've gained, but how much has been lost and laid aside. And we'll have stories. We're going to share with great celebration and great amazement, not sadness or regret, of how all the difficulties that we've endured in this race All of them were met with the promised rewards of God from whom we will never, ever tire of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. And sitting with us at the right hand of the throne, of course, is Jesus. And he will simply say this, did I not tell you, did I not tell you guys that it would all be worth it? For this, I went to the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would help us, as you always do and as you always have been, that you would help us to continue to put one foot in front of the other in faith. That you would help us give or to have a view and a vision of the Lord Jesus that compels and motivates us to keep going. And we pray, Lord, that Christ would be honored pray that we would not grow weary and we would make it all the way to the end for his sake and the the sake of all the saints as well. In Jesus' name.